0: All right, Isaiah 47, turn there, go there, get ready. The topic we find there, Babylon calls herself the Lady of Kingdoms, but Isaiah predicted that they would be conquered and their nakedness uncovered. The title of the message, My Bare Lady. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we uh, want to humble ourselves before you. We want to be humble before you, Lord, I should say. We want to know that you've spoken to us, Lord. This unique, special group of your people, Lord, that are here today, there will never be a meeting like this again. Some are here, some are not here, Lord. We sit in different places, we meet different people, but this day is going to be like no other day, and we want to have a sense of expectation of what you might do in it, who we might meet what you might resolve, what you might begin, what you might share with us. We at least want to leave this place knowing more about your love for us, thinking about Jesus and what he did and who he is and looking forward to his coming. And so, Lord, do more than we would ever ask or think or pray. We ask it in Jesus' name and those who agreed said, amen. Is there hope for America? Well, here are three responses from experts. Number one, it is the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God, to obey His will, to be grateful for His benefits, and humbly to implore His protection and favors. Here's another The God who gave us life gave us liberty. Can the liberties of a nation be secure when we have removed a conviction that these liberties are the gift of God? Number three, Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. The experts are in order, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, John Adams. So how are we doing as a nation? It's like the days of Noah out there. Weird marriages, a near total disrespect for biblical morality, seemingly unrestrained violence everywhere. One thing we've discovered as we've studied Isaiah is that God deals with nations, not just individuals. It's given us opportunity to talk about our own nation in the plans and purposes of God. And yes, we are in trouble. Isaiah predicts the demise of the kingdom of Babylon. He does so with a poignant illustration. He starts off calling her the virgin daughter, but he quickly adds, take the millstones and grind meal. Remove your veil, take off the skirt, uncover the thigh, pass through the rivers, your nakedness shall be uncovered. Yes, your shame will be seen. Human history is littered with conquered empires. In every case, though we may not know the details, it is in accordance with God's plan that redemption for everyone would come through the nation of Israel. Before we ever answer the question, is there hope for America?, there are two preliminary questions. I'll organize my comments around them. Number one, are we a daughter that comes to dust? Number two, are we daughters who consort with devils? Let's take a look at verses one through eight where we talk about a daughter in the dust. Now, don't think of it as dust. Think of it as the soil of some great past civilization. Maybe the soil of ancient Babylon staggers the imagination. Pigpen says that in the timeless classic, A Charlie Brown Christmas, if you're wondering where that's from. Our text explains the dust of Babylon, beginning in verse 1, of course. Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you, have, uh, you shall no more be called tender and delicate. The Chaldeans were an aggressive people group within Babylon. Over time, their name came to be synonymous with Babylon. When the Bible refers to a daughter singular, she represents the entire nation. Daughters plural refers to individual citizens, both male and female. God was about to bring them to dust, from virginal to violated. Verse 2 Take the millstones and grind meal, remove your veil. Take off the skirt, uncover the thigh, pass through the rivers. Your nakedness shall be uncovered. Yes, your shame shall be seen. I will take vengeance. I will not arbitrate with a man. Babylon would be conquered, and instead of the tender young virgin, they would become like common slaves. The behaviors that are uh, discussed uh, all have to do with slaves doing their work, girding up their clothing, getting wet in the river and all. And so here, you know, the Babylonians used to being carried around and having luxury and all, and the Lord says, yeah, you're going to be like common slaves, and you're going to be ashamed like people who are naked. God will not arbitrate means that this judgment was final. Once it began, he would not relent. Yes, God is the God of second chances and, you know, On and on and on actually it's it's interesting from one point of view if I've got my math right um, which I never do uh, helps me with the IRS anyway uh, now I have to remember what I'm talking about oh second chances right truth is you only get a second chance because once you repent from the second chance everything's wiped clean and so, if something else happens, it's a new second chance. You understand what I'm saying? I mean, you don't say to God, "Huh, oh, I know, Lord, I'm on my one millionth chance." No, because if you've if you've asked the Lord to forgive you, He has, and and uh, He's put His sin far away from Him. He remembers it no more. And so, we are the people of the second chance always. I just think that's a little bit, a little bit precious. Um, but. Uh, it, sometimes we say it's never too late to come to Jesus and be saved, but uh, it is. Uh, you can't be saved after you die, for example. That's a great lie. That's a terrible deception. Anybody who thinks you can get saved after you die, second chance in the afterlife, it's not true. I remember talking to my dad about this a couple of weeks before he died. He, he uh, you know, thought that he would just spend... Millions of years, if he had to, in the afterlife, getting ready to go to heaven. Uh, It's sad that people think those things. Uh, And so it can become too late. One commentator writes, Our Creator blesses each nation with a span of time so it might prosper and do well. But this blessing ends when a nation becomes degenerate, rebellious, and unfit for self-rule. When God determines that extended mercy for a nation has no redeeming effect... He will marginalize or destroy that nation. Verse 4, as for our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts is his name, the Holy One of Israel. The Jews would be taken captive to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar. They would be slaves in his realm. Slaves, excuse me, need to be redeemed. They need someone to purchase them and set them free. The slave status in Babylon lasted 70 years. With help from the new reigning world empire at that time, the Medo-Persians, the Jews would return to Jerusalem, rebuild its walls and its temple. A lot of that help came because Cyrus, who was the king of Medo-Persia at that time, was named in the book of Isaiah 150 years before he came to power. And uh, undoubtedly the Jews went to Cyrus and showed him the prophecy in God's word, uh, and he was mind-blown. Imagine how you would feel, uh, and aided the Jews. He he told them to go back. He offered them help and money uh, to rebuild their city and their temple. Um, uh, The appellation of uh, Lady of Kingdoms, Albert Barnes says, is equivalent to the mistress of the world. The idea is that Babylon was the mistress and that all other cities were regarded as servants or as subordinate. So they were claiming to be the number one city and the number one nation of the world. Verse six, I was angry uh, with my people. I have profaned my inheritance and given them into your hand. You showed them no mercy. On the elderly, you laid your yoke very heavily. Now the Lord gets angry. I don't think we can comprehend uh Holy anger until we too are in glorified bodies that can't sin. And so I could talk all morning about being angry and not sinning and, you know, and and the fact we would agree, I guess there's a type of anger, but I don't know what it is. Uh, So it's better to just not be angry at all, right? And to just let things roll off of you and onto the Lord. But, But, you know, I like to remind us without going too crazy that the Lord made us in his image. And, um, you know, so we can know a little bit about the Lord from that. Obviously, the Lord has emotions. We know the Holy Spirit can be grieved and, and uh, things like that. And so God's emotional. And so he says, say, hey, I, I was angry. And uh, instead of saying he wasn't, you know, that's what we like, he wasn't really angry. Yeah, he was. But we don't know how that really works out, you know, in terms of the feeling. We see how it works out in terms of what he does. He disciplines Israel by raising up Babylon to be kind of like a big spanking spoon for them. But they showed no mercy, Uh, you know. uh, He decided to profane Jerusalem in the temple uh, to secure the repentance of his chosen people. And then uh, Babylon, you know, just went too far. There's a pretty common TV and movie trope in which the antagonist tells one of his stooges to teach someone a lesson. The stooge then kills the person, much to the disliking of his boss. He didn't mean for him to kill the guy. He says, I didn't want you to kill him. He said, well, take care of it, and I did. So, you know, it's, 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 and why am I telling you that? Babylon is like that stooge who goes too far disciplining the Jews for the Lord. He raises Babylon up. He says, okay, you know, here's what's going to happen. My people need to learn a lesson. You're going to destroy the temple. You're going to knock down the walls. You're going to take them captive. But then uh, Babylon went too far and started putting burdens on the elderly and abusing the elderly of Israel. Before the defense of Helm's Deep, Aragorn stirred the forces of Rohan by shouting, Show them no mercy, for you shall receive none. There was nothing wrong with Babylon showing mercy to Israel. That's what Medo-Perksha did. So the idea, I guess, if you're one of these nations that rises in power to discipline God's people is that, you know, you, you, you become harsh and cruel, uh, but that's not what God wanted at all. He just wanted them taken captive for 70 years, and then they were going to return to their land. And so then he has to discipline Babylon. And so this is how we see history, because that's how the Bible sees history. You look at nations in terms of what kind of relationship do they have with with each other and with Israel, because God is moving through Israel to a a prescripted end. And so uh, that's what's going on. You shall say, I will be a lady forever, so that you shall not take these things to heart, nor remember the latter end of them. Joseph Benson reminds us of the sheer fortitude of the city. He says, if we consider that the city of Babylon had no less than 100 gates made of solid brass, that its walls were 200 feet high and 50 abroad, according to the lowest account given of them by historians, and according to some, 350 feet in height and 87 feet in thickness, so that six chariots could go abreast upon them, uh, that it was defended by the river Euphrates and supplied with provisions for many years, it might well be deemed impregnable, and such a city as this might, with less vanity than any other, boast that she should continue forever if anything human would constitute forever. I give you a little perspective. The Statue of Liberty is 305 feet tall. And so the Persians' 350 foot wall. Uh, it's, it's extreme. They devised a plan, or Babylon's rather, the Persians devised a plan whereby they divided, uh, diverted the course of the Euphrates River so that they could go under Babylon's wall. While the residents of the city were distracted, drunk, as it, it turns out, the Persian army marched under the walls of Babylon unnoticed, and it was claimed that the city was taken without a fight. I think that the Lord gave them this strategery. You know who else has strategies? The devil. He wants to work them on you. He can't wait. The fall of Babylon can be a lesson for us. Now, the lesson isn't don't drink, although that's not such a bad idea. Probably not going to get too many DUIs if you don't D, right? Uh, What's the D for? Driving. Never mind. That's stupid. So I should never be, you know, go out there on my own, do improv. It's like improv is good for comedy, but not for Bible study. But anyway, so, you know, don't drink. But I think the real lesson here is don't do anything that makes you vulnerable. Don't do anything that makes you vulnerable. Get your guard up and keep it up. There is never going to be a time in your life that you can escape spiritual warfare. There are no furloughs. Not even bereavement leave. The devil is a psychopathic liar and murderer. He's going to pile on in the worst of times. You ever hear about some of these people? It's like it's like Jobian, you know, from the Book of Job. It's like this happened, and this happened, and this happened. This person died in their family, and this other person became disabled, and now they have cancer or whatever. It's like wow why doesn't the, you know, the devil ever relent? He won't. He shows you no mercy. And that's why we can never be uh, off guard or off. We need to put on the armor of God and keep it on. It may chafe, uh, you know, it may not fit right or whatever, but we, we've got to keep it on because the, the devil's coming for us. Not him personally, but he has plenty of emissaries. Uh, Jesus told Peter, it says, the devil wants to sift you like wheat. Uh, I can imagine that the devil was in heaven talking to the Father like he about Peter the way he did about Job. And, and, and uh, you know, what he said about Peter, I don't know, probably something like, hey, that guy's about ready to crack. Your grace can't help him. And uh, God allowed that for his glory and for Peter's. Uh, and, and so, you know, don't, don't let your guard down. You can't afford it. Not for a minute. Verse 8, therefore hear this now, you who are given to pleasures, who dwell securely, who say in your heart, I am, and there is no one else besides me. I shall not sit as a widow, nor shall I know the loss of children. Verse 8 captures the general opinion of Babylon's population. They believe themselves invulnerable and possessing wisdom superior to that of any other culture. People always feel like they deserve their prosperity. If, if God allows them to prosper, they have massive walls and armies and supplies, and you know everything seems to be going their way. Then they they want to take the credit for it, uh, and they want to think that you know they're better than everybody else, and it's their own wisdom. King Nebuchadnezzar set the tone. One fine day, he said, "Is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling?" by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty. While the word was still in the king's mouth, we learn, a voice fell from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoke. The kingdom has departed from you. They shall drive you from men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They'll make you eat grass like oxen, and seven times shall pass over you until you know that the most high rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses." And so Nebuchadnezzar influenced his people, but he also embodied their attitude, and that is, Babylon is great, we've made it great, uh, nothing and no one can stand against us. His humbling resulted in his conversion, as per chapter 4 of Daniel. The illustration God uses, the virgin daughter, is how Babylon, uh, Babylonians thought of themselves. It's nothing new for people to think highly but wrongly about themselves. In the book of the Revelation, we see the church at Laodicea. The gap between how they saw themselves and how Jesus saw them and how they really were was like the Grand Canyon and trying to jump across it. Uh, you know, they, they thought they were rich and had need of nothing. Jesus says, you are miserable, wretched, poor, naked, and blind spiritually. And, and you think, wow, what a gap. That's incredible. Uh, how, do, how does it get that far? If you think they're not a good comparison because most of them were not saved, substitute the church at Ephesus. With everything they had going on for the Lord, all their programs and their Bible studies and such, there's no way they thought of themselves as having left their first love. Yet Jesus said that, and it was a revelation to them. There's no how-to here uh, in the sense of having a humility for dummies, right? That's, what we, that's how I think anyway. I don't know about you guys. You know, I know you're a lot smarter than I am, but I would hear a message like this and think, well, I've got to get over to the bookstore and see if I can pick up a, a Humility for Dummies book and, and start practicing that kind of thing. Jesus spoke to the Laodiceans and the Ephesians directly by his word. He just gave them his word and, and said, hey, you have left your first love, do this. Uh, same thing with the Laodiceans. He said, I'm knocking at the door, let me in. Uh, you know, we assume that some received what he said and some did not. From studying the men and women in the Bible and godly men and women throughout the church age in Christian history, it seems to come down to this. Like the Apostle Paul, you should be able to declare that you are the chief of sinners. Simultaneously, you praise God's amazing grace in your life, and the result ought to be a joy that's unspeakable and full of glory. I think a lot of times we're prone to go too far and think, I'm, I'm such a wretch, I'm never going to make it, it's ridiculous, you know, I shouldn't even try, um, that, those kinds of things. But the Lord doesn't show you things to defeat you, He doesn't want you defeated, he wants you victorious. You're never going to be victorious if you think more highly of yourself than you ought to think, because there's no room for God to work in and through your life if you think that. Uh, you, you're, you're going to share yourself with people rather than the Lord Jesus Christ, and you don't want that. Uh, and, you know, so we don't want to go there. And, you know, while you're realizing how wretched you really are and and why the Lord had to die for you, uh, God is filling you with his grace and saying, hey, this I died for you, I died for that, I, we can take care of that, you can walk with me. And so we just get deeper and deeper into this kind of, uh, understanding that, yeah, hey, Lord, I uh, I might as well be humble because I've got nothing to be proud of. And, and so, uh, you know, that's how we pursue that. We are honest with ourselves and just say, you know, every day. I mean, it's never going to get any... Again, that's not going to change either. We, the, the, our bodies of flesh, unregenerate bodies, holdover, sin, habitual sin, these kinds of things, uh, prone to sin, We're never going to get to the point where we say, hey, I am totally humble. Uh, I only, you know, give credit to the Lord. I never think more highly of myself than I ought to. That's just not going to uh, happen until we're in heaven. Verse 9 through 15, are we daughters who consort with devils? Well, the the remaining verses emphasize the occult. Mentioned here are sorceries two times, enchantments also twice, astrologers, stargazers, and prognosticators. Babylon depended heavily on the wisdom, knowledge, and counsel of the occult. Aren't you glad we don't do that here in America? I wish that were true. By all metrics, the occult and occult practices are on the rise. According to a survey conducted in 2021, about 2 in 10 Americans believe in spells or witchcraft. In October 2022 article, NBC News commented, witchcraft including Wicca, paganism, folk magic, and other New Age traditions is one of the fastest growing spiritual paths in America. Way back in 2018, NBC posted an article titled, Number of Witches Rises Dramatically Across U.S. as Millennials Reject Christianity. And so people are gravitating towards uh, witchcraft. Verse 9, But these two things shall come to you in a moment in one day, the loss of children, and widowhood. They shall come upon you in their fullness because of the multitude of your sorceries for the great abundance of your enchantments. I should mention that the astronomy uh, of the Magi was considered by some more like science. The Magi came from Babylon to see the young child Jesus. Uh, They correctly identified the star that somehow led them to find and worship he who would be born king of the Jews. Church father Origen stated that the Magi had a copy of the prophecy of Balaam found in Numbers 24 about the star coming out of Jacob. It was revealed to them by Daniel. Tertullian, around 190 to 210 AD, stated that, the astrology, uh, that astrology rather is idolatry. All astrology is idolatry. But he believed that the science of the Magi was totally different from the pagan forms of Of astrology so just tuck that away because you might think well Christmas time what about the magi weren't they magicians didn't they come from Babylon how come there they get a pass Uh, it wasn't all occult Uh, Daniel was there for uh, right and he never dabbled in the occult Uh, in fact he would outshine all of their prophets and occult influences and and he was undoubtedly the one that talked to them about this reference in number to be looking for the star And then when it appeared, somehow, people still debate, well, how did it lead them, you know, directly to Jesus? We don't know. Verse 10, you have trusted in your wickedness. You have said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge have warped you. And you have said in your heart, I am, and there is no one else besides me. God calls their occult wisdom and knowledge wickedness. A side effect of their practices was that it warped them into thinking they were like God. They said in their heart, I, uh, the am is uh, added by the translators. You see it's in, you know, most Bibles, it's in uh, either parentheses or italics. But they said I. They had the same I trouble that led Satan to rebel and fall. You remember uh, in, uh, when talking about Satan, he says, I will ascend, I will do this, I will do that. And so it's clever to say, well, he had I trouble, not E-Y-E, but just I looking at himself, thinking more highly of himself. Add to that, they said, no one sees me, and this likely refers to them thinking that since they were like God, there was no deity who could judge them. Uh, Verse 11, therefore evil shall come upon you. You shall not know from where it arises, and trouble shall fall upon you. You will not be able to put it off. And desolation shall come upon you suddenly, which you shall not know. Daniel describes the feast which took place on the night Babylon fell. We explained how King Cyrus took Babylon effortlessly by going under the wall. The chapter ends with obvious sarcasm. The Lord shows how pitiful was their wisdom and knowledge compared to his omniscience, how puny was their might compared to his omnipotence, how precious was and is his omnipresence compared to their magicians being as vulnerable as stubble is to flame. There's one more omni that isn't listed. God is omnibenevolent, meaning perfectly and powerfully good. It may not have seemed that way to the Chaldeans, but they had opportunity to obey him and know his goodness. The choice was theirs. Stand now, verse 12, with your enchantments and the multiple of your sorceries in which you have labored from your youth. Perhaps you will be able to profit. Perhaps you will prevail. You are wearied in the multitude of your counsels. Let now the astrologers, the stargazers, and the monthly prognosticators stand up and save you from what shall come upon you. Behold, they shall be as stubble, fire shall burn them. They shall not deliver themselves from the power of the flame. It shall not be a coal to be warmed by fire, nor a fire to sit before. Thus shall they be to you with whom you have labored, your merchants from your youth, They shall wander each one to his quarter. No one shall save you. Interesting here, this reference to merchants. We're made aware in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ that there will be a Babylon in the last days. It will be the capital of the earth ruled by the Antichrist. And we read about it uh, in the Revelation. It says, the kings of the earth who committed fornication and lived luxuriously with Babylon will weep and lament for her when they see the smoke of her burning standing at a distance for fear of her torment, saying, Alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour your judgment has come, and the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her, for no one buys their merchandise anymore. And so there's all of these neat connections that we can make since we have the completed Bible. Uh, the You know, in uh, Isaiah's day, they couldn't understand this. Isaiah just recorded what the Lord wanted him to record, and he talks about the merchants, but merchants become very prevalent in the end times. Uh, okay, I need help with pronunciation. I think we solved this uh, backstage, but uh, the, the, uh, I'm going to describe the board that you put your fingers on and you move the little platen. Ouija? Ouija? It's, I hate to blow your mind, but it's actually Ouija is the correct, correct pronunciation. But it's a, been a Ouija board for me. Uh, you know, I mean, Everybody calls it the Ouija board, but it's Ouija. So you'll only learn that here. Uh, <laughs> so when people say, hey, what would you do at church? Says, we, we learned uh, that there's a Ouija board. Oh, is it anything like the Ouija board? That's more like a squeegee that you use for your windows. But, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Lance, that was funnier. I found it funnier than these people did, but anyway. I doubt that you get together with friends and break out your Ouija board. Somebody is, or I should say, 25 million somebody's based on sales. It's a bestseller. And there are other talking boards, they have different names, but they all go by Ouija. Uh, you know, it's kind of like tissue, facial tissue is all Kleenex, right? Uh, but it's not. Kleenex is a brand, not a, the thing. But so the Ouija board, probably nobody here is. I doubt that you're dabbling you know, in the occult with rituals and all. hopefully you don't have a pincushion of me at your house or anything like that. But just because we're not conducting pagan rituals doesn't mean there might not be some things that we would be better off avoiding. After all, the world around us is still Babylon. It's, it's uh, maybe worse than ever in its subtleties. Will some future pig pen say, don't think of it as dust, think of it as the soil of some great past civilization, maybe the soil of ancient America? We can ask one additional expert. Abraham Lincoln said, we have been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We've grown in numbers, wealth and power as no other nation has ever grown. But we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. We have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become self sufficient, too much to feel the necess- necessity of redeeming and preserving grace, too proud to pray to the God that made us. I wanna take a bipartisan approach here. You pick the slogan that best aligns with your vote. We need to build back spiritually. We need to make America repent again. What do you think? In the end, we'll agree that the nation of Israel is, for lack of a better word, the greatest nation ever. Of the myriads of reasons we could cite, I like what the Apostle Paul said. Speaking of ethnic Jews in chapter nine of the book of Romans, he uh, describes Israel and he says, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God and the promises of whom are the fathers and from whom according to the flesh, Jesus Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. And so we would have to say by the most important measurements, the nation of Israel is the key nation in human history, the number one nation in the world, because through them came all of these tremendous blessings, the law, the prophets, adoption into the family and all, and especially Jesus Christ. And so this is the so. So what does that mean? It means that every other nation in the world has a support role to play with Israel. A lot of people are supporting things that say support Israel, right? And that's great. We support them in the sense that they have brought the Messiah into the world. And that they are and, and in the future he's going to reign not from you know any other great capital of the world. He's going to reign from Jerusalem. Uh, and so that that's just the way it is. So where is America in prophecy? Well, right now, we are one of the few nations that is standing somewhat in support, right? Uh, we know that there's coming a time in the future when the Bible says all the nations of the world will be against Israel. And so if we're still in the world as a nation, then we will be there too. What, what's happening? No one knows because we're not really mentioned in the Bible, but... The scenario I see happening is this. Lots of Christians in the United States, right? Wouldn't you agree? I mean, you know, we may not all be walking, you know, as, as we ought to be. We certainly need revival and repentance and all that. But a lot of Americans. It's not easy to believe, and a lot of people claim to believe in Jesus Christ. But however many, there's going to be millions that are taken when the rapture happens. And the United States will be a disaster when the rapture takes place. It just will be... You know, I, there's that show, oh, what's it called, Kiefer Sutherland? Remember where they blow up all the Congress and the president? Everybody dies except him. Uh, he's the last one, you know, he has to become the president. I hear you whispering. What's the name of the show? Designated Survivor. Designated Survivor, yeah, and stuff. And so, but you know, the United States is going to be really torqued, uh, you know, when that happens. And some other countries, not so much. And so it, the whole world's going to be going crazy. Uh And so... You know, maybe we're just not here in the sense of the America we know. And so, you know, uh, we support Israel. Doesn't mean everything Israel does is right. They're not saved right now. You realize that, you know, so we have to be careful. Um, A lot of Christians are excited about Israel rebuilding their temple, right? I've never understood that because God's not going to dwell in that temple. He doesn't dwell in a temple anymore. Uh, So anyway, we could talk all morning about that kind of stuff, but uh, Where is America? Staunchly in support of Israel right now, I would hope, later against them. And what intervenes can only be, I think, the rapture of the church. And so we say together come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen.